One man made all the difference. One man created the modern automobile as we know it. He was a pioneer meeting the very first people to create the car, being one of the founders of the Cadillac Car Company, enabling the publicity and the shift. He even had a car company named after him. I'm talking, of course, about William Metzger. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second after this message from our sponsor. William Metzger? Really? Yes, William Metzger was the first car dealer in the United States. Auto sales, where our vehicles have seen better days, and we want you to see better days too. Hello, everyone. I'm Larry Love, owner here at Better Days Auto Sale, and boy, do we have a deal for you. Some cars you might have to push off the lot, some cars you can drive off the lot. And it turns out, as we face the eclipse of car dealerships a hundred years into it, that his role in shifting retail has lessons for all of us. First, a little bit of background. In the 1890s, Metzger, a young man, co-founded a bike store in Detroit. Bicycle stores were a big deal because bikes were just about the only way to get around. For whatever reason, he ended up in London in 1895 at one of the very first car shows where he saw a Daimler-Benz. He then went over to Germany to see how they were made, and at that point, they had made a total of 200 cars. Seeing the future, Metzger went back to Detroit, sold his bike shop to his partner, and opened the first car dealership. Ironically enough, they sold electric cars. There were a whole bunch of problems facing car manufacturers in those days, problems that may sound familiar to entrepreneurs and changemakers today. Number one, the creators didn't have enough cash It cost a lot of money to ramp up what you were building, and it took years to get it to the point where you could sell cars. Number two, the product they were making was relatively unknown. Number three, it would probably need service, and the combination of service and being unknown meant there was a lack of trust. Metzger saw all of this and devoted his working life to fixing the problems one after another. He co-founded the Detroit Auto Show. He helped stage the New York Auto Show right after that. These were two of the first auto shows ever held in the United States. Then he came up with the idea of public races, sometimes with a parade beforehand. At one of the most notable races, a young man named Henry Ford upset the presumed favorite driving a car that would later become the prototype for the Cadillac. The idea that the public could go see a car race was really important because what it did was demonstrate that these vehicles, because remember, no roads, no gas stations, that these vehicles were going to be worth changing our entire culture around. In 1908, in New York, near where I live, they built a bunch of limited-access parkways. The top speed allowed on the parkway was 25 miles per hour. 
And the purpose of the parkway was to give wealthy people, the only people who had cars, something to do with their car. That the idea was that on a weekend, you and your family could go for a ride on this windy road up north or out to the island and enjoy yourselves. Back to William Metzger. Okay, so we've got the car races. We've got the car dealership. We've got the electric cars. We've got this prototype for Cadillac. We've got Henry Ford, who now is up to his third car company, largely on the basis of his winning these races in Detroit, he was able to find funding. Metzger becomes an Oldsmobile dealer, and he sells a ton of them. Then he decides to start Cadillac with a couple partners. He took orders for 2,700 cars at the New York Auto Show alone, orders in advance. In 1903, it was the number two most popular car in the United States. Something to understand about Metzger, apparently he didn't get along with other people very well, and there's a long history of him starting things and then falling out with his partners. Later, Metzger decides to join up with two other men and starts another car company. This is the one named after him, the Everett Metzger Flanders Company, and they had Studebaker as their distributor. So there we are again, seeing the importance of distribution when we're bringing a new technology to the world. Because the truth is this, the car companies weren't well capitalized enough to make cars and also sell cars. The reason that dealerships took off was that the car companies gave the dealer a bargain. And the bargain was, if you can figure out how to build and run a dealership, we will stick with you for decades or centuries and you will be able to harvest a significant portion of the profit for every car sold. What the car company got in exchange was distribution, something they couldn't afford to build on their own. And with Tesla's recent announcement that they're getting rid of dealerships, we now see the end of that cycle. 80% of the people who buy a Tesla are buying one without test driving it at a dealer first. Tesla has figured out that they can afford a 30-day money-back guarantee that will end up being cheaper than what they would have to pay to a dealer network. The other thing to understand about dealers and cars is that the cars broke. They broke a lot. And for most car dealers, making money from selling a car was one thing, but they were really in the business of servicing the car. So if you're wondering why there are so many things built in your car that require a trip to the dealer, now you know. Because the car companies, other than Tesla, need to keep their dealers happy, especially because more dealers now carry multiple brands. The dealer gets to decide which direction to push a customer in, and so keeping the dealers happy is critical. For many car companies, they think that's their real customer. So putting things into the car that require a visit to the dealer is a way that the dealers are expressing their power to the car companies. And it's only in the last 30 years, post-Demings, where quality has gotten so much better that the car companies are able to push back. 
that the amount of money that a dealer can make from servicing a car over its lifetime keeps going down. And so the car companies are now having the upper hand because they are using marketing to drive people to the dealership as opposed to what used to happen, which was the dealer driving people to the car company. One way that this is expressed, and you've probably gotten this phone call, is that after you buy a car or after you get a car serviced, you will probably get a call from a company that asks you to rate the quality of the service that you got. Why are they doing that? What is its point? Well, here's what happens. When a car company has a hot car, a car that's in demand, they allocate it to dealers based on how well those dealers are servicing the customers. Because the marketers at the car companies have figured out that we can't tell the difference between a dealer and the company. If you hate your Honda dealer, you also hate Honda. So what the marketers at the car companies have done is work to closely align their brand interests with the dealer's brand interests. So a dealer with low ratings gets allocated fewer cars. If they get allocated fewer cars, they can't sell them. So what dealers have discovered is that in a more competitive environment, they've got to figure out how to make the service not into a profit center, but into something that leads to the long-term growth of their business. An aside here, the great story of Ike Sewell from Sewell Cadillac in Texas. The way Ike tells it, what he did was he said to his service manager and he said to his sales manager, you guys have to switch jobs. Every three months, the service manager moves to the sales floor and the sales manager moves to service. Why? Because they discover all the promises they've been telling to their customers. The sales manager, now working in the service area, starts encountering customers who have been promised stuff by the salespeople, stuff he's not able to deliver on. This empathy of going from the sales side to the service side is yet another symptom of how the distribution changes. Okay, last thing about William Metzger. In the 1920s, after having been through this company, that company, the other company, even a company with the famous Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War I flying ace, he decides he's had enough of the car business and he befriends the Wright brothers. I don't know why there aren't airplane dealerships. I guess William Metzger never got around to it. So what does this have to do with anything other than cars? Well, let's think about computer land. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, when personal computers were new, they had exactly the same problems as cars did. There wasn't enough cash for the computer companies to build a network. People didn't trust them. They needed service, and there was no place to buy them. Computer land began as a chain aimed at business customers. Pretty soon, it became apparent that the typical computer user wouldn't pay for service the way the typical car driver would. That if your car didn't work, you paid to get it fixed. But if your computer didn't work, you weren't prepared to pay more than the computer cost in the first place to get the coding fixed. And what that meant was that it was on the computer companies and the software companies to make software that users could fix on their own. So one of the giant leaps forward that the Mac took in 1984 
was being able to say to the people who purchased it, there's not a lot of parts under the hood that you can fix, but you don't need to because we have pushed hard on the software companies to create a uniform interaction that you can handle. Apple doubled down on this more than a decade ago when Ron Johnson again changed the world of retail in the Metzger style by inventing the Apple Store. The Apple Store, the genius bar, the entire interaction you had when you went into an Apple Store during the glory days, that was new. And it was sending a message. Of course, you could have bought one at Best Buy. Of course, you could have bought one at 1-800-MAC-LISA. But you didn't. You went into the store because the humanity of the interaction, the Metzger-like show that was being put on, changed the way you thought about this computer. And then, eventually, the phone. Now, the Apple Store has evolved with the corporate times and is now mostly a cost-managed retail environment, not one optimized to create joy, but one optimized to process the huge number of people who are passing through. Let's think for a second about Warby Parker. As Warby Parker, the eyeglasses people, grew online, one thing became clear to them. That still to this day, in this day of one-click shopping, there are a lot of people who don't want to buy something without touching it first. Eyeglasses are one of those categories. So what Warby did was they looked at all of the data they had about where people who bought from them online lived. And then they went out and they bought a school bus. And they renovated the inside of the school bus to make it look like a retail store. They parked that school bus on a street corner where their data said a lot of their customers already lived. They'd leave it there for two weeks, sell some glasses face-to-face, and then they'd pull the bus away from the curb and try it in a different neighborhood. After doing this for a while, they started renting stores in the places where the school bus had done the best. As a result, every Warby store they've ever opened has made a profit. Not only has it made a profit as a store, but it is a living billboard for the company online. And more and more online companies are discovering that once they have enough money, opening retail outlets is a cheap way to show people that you're serious, that you're not going anywhere, that people can touch it and try it. Two more examples. L.L. Bean famously has a -a 24-hour-a-day retail store in Freeport, Maine, and people would drive for two, three, four hours to visit this place, a mecca of duck boots and wide whale corduroy pants. That confused them. They came to believe that opening more L.L. Bean stores far and wide, they'd do just as well. But these stores weren't like car dealerships. People trusted L.L. Bean's guarantee. They didn't need to see it in person. That one store in Freeport, Maine, that was a tourist attraction. And tourist attractions feel different than profitable car dealerships. Tourist attractions don't scale the way car dealerships do. And that's why if you go visit your local L.L. Bean store, you won't see huge lines out the door and all the excitement that you'll see in Freeport, Maine. And the last example is the difference between coffee and chocolate. Throughout the United States, there are high-end coffee roasters. There are businesses that are able to roast coffee beans 
and sell them to a public that appreciates it. One of the reasons is that the economics of the high-end espresso bar in a small space, not paying a lot of rent, selling things for 5 or 6 or $7 a cup, are excellent. And as a result, that retail channel exists. But there's almost nowhere in the U.S. to buy high-end chocolate bars. In New York City, there might be two or three stores where you can get 20 or 30 different kinds of chocolate to choose from because the economics of the retail environment don't support that. So when we think about how our culture is changed by businesses, what we realize is we need a Metzger, a Metzger who will do the last mile, who will figure out how to create a profitable retail space where customers can engage, can find the trust that they need, the confidence to move forward, and a place to get the thing serviced when it breaks. We'll be back in a second to answer your questions from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. I'd love to hear your questions about this episode or anything that came before. To ask your question, just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. While you're there, check out the show notes. Hi, Seth. My name is Landon. I live in Greenville, South Carolina, and I work for a publishing company. My question for you is, What does a pivot away from this spectrum with limited space and more capitalist tendencies look like for a mature company like mine that got its legs in that atmosphere 30 years ago? Thank you so much. This is a great place to start. Here's the deal. First, you need to see, and it sounds like you are seeing, that the world is changing. Second, your organization needs to think about its mission. Who are you trying to change? What change do you seek to make? But the third one, the practical question you are asking is, what are your assets? What do you already own? Because if you have no assets, then you have no advantage over anyone else other than your ability to see and the fact that you have a change you seek to make. But you do have assets. And successful organizations often falter Because when the world changes, instead of saying, what do we already have, they panic in the face of what they don't have. So in the case of a publishing company, what we know is that paper isn't as important as it used to be, that shelf space is less important than it used to be. But what's more important than it used to be are the authors who trust you, the readers who trust you. So you can double down on your relationship with your authors and you can figure out your relationship with your readers. Because most publishers have no actual connection to the people who buy their books. That's the first mistake. Random House, Simon & Schuster, they should have started Google, not Google, because they're in the business of finding, organizing, and sharing information. That as soon as Amazon 
and Apple show up and say, we're going to intermediate between you and the reader, every book publisher on the planet should have run away from that offer because the infinite shelf space of an Amazon is worth nothing compared to the valuable permission of knowing who is reading and why. So if you begin, for example, with newsletters, digital newsletters for your readers from your authors, you can get back into the business you set out to be, to be the intermediary, the trusted curator. The work, the plan, is not that complicated, but it requires diligence, a compass, a willingness to say, yeah, the business we are in is to find books for our readers, not readers for our books. Hey, Seth. This is John from Austin, Texas. And your episode, Supple, got me thinking, along with your past comments on sunk costs, uh, about what if you're starting out a little bit later in life? You know, I'm turning 30. And let's say I, I want to kind of enact this thought of sunk costs. For instance, for me, I have a career as an accountant in the past that I don't identify with, I don't enjoy, and I don't want to pursue it. It's, it's not rewarding. And I have a lot more to offer than that. So if the world, see, if we are indeed supple enough to go when the world changes, where the world kind of wants us to go, um, like let's say we want to pursue tech or programming, how do we do that while still picking a dip that allows us to be the best in the world? Because it almost seems like those conflict. If we, if we start a little bit late and we decide we're supple enough to move when the world changes... Are we setting ourselves up for uh, a situation where we actually can't be the best in the world, either because others have too much of a head start, um, maybe we're starting too late? Um, so how do we navigate this when we're making a decision to disregard sunk costs and do the best decision moving forward that's in line with the way the world is changing how can we how can we pick a dip that's worth going through if it doesn't seem like that dip exists. Thanks, Seth. This is a neat way to think about the problem, but I want to challenge you about a couple things. First of all, you're hardly starting late, that the world keeps changing, and every time it changes, lots of people who are significantly older or who have more sunk costs than you do have to start over. But the real question is, which dip will you choose to go through? And it's easy to imagine that the dip in front of us is the biggest possible one, that I want to become an Academy Award-winning actor, that I want to be number one in market share. But that's not all you have to choose from, that in fact, what we get to do is simply be the best in the world for a few people, for the smallest viable audience, for a group of people who we can serve, who care about us. And by being specific truly hyper-specific, we have a chance of getting through the dip. So I'll use accounting as an example. You could be an accountant. You could be an accountant only for players of classical musical instruments who are in orchestras because they have very specific needs and because they all know each other. If you become the best in the world at doing the books, for the trumpet section of the New York Philharmonic, then the trumpeters will probably tell 
the oboe players, and maybe even the bassoonist, though they don't like the bassoonist that much. The point is, you don't need to get through the biggest dip in the world. You simply need to be the best for a few. Hi, Seth. My name's Heffer. I'm in Amsterdam. Um, I loved your latest episode on being fooled by the spectrum, and it brought up some thinking for me on the topic of uh, you know, finding your smallest viable audience. I recently participated in the freelancers workshop on Akimbo, so this idea has kind of been sitting with me for a while. My question is, how do you, or maybe it's better to say, like, what is the best way that you can figure out if the audience you have selected is actually viable? Is the only way you can figure this out by testing it and trying it for a while and failing or succeeding? Or is there a way to research the income that's possible from the audience of your choice? I'm a designer, so for example, uh, if I decide to do identity design for musicians, and yeah, you could go more niche than that, but say I started doing identity design for musicians, and after a few jobs, I realized that musicians don't really have large enough budgets, nor do they want to spend a lot of money on identity design. Is there a method to figuring this out before you get into it? Uh, I hope that makes sense. Uh, Thanks in advance for your time. So there are two things going on here, and let's divide them up. One is, can you reach the minimum viable audience? But the other one is, what is it even? What is the minimum viable audience? That is something you can simply assert. As I mentioned in the accounting question, maybe 100 musicians, each paying you 2000 or $3,000 a year for their accounting, that's enough. That's the minimum viable audience. You don't have to test anything you can simply assert. After you've made the assertion, first you have to figure out, does it meet the smell test? Is it possible to get 200 classical musicians to change who their accountant is, given that you have 25,000 to choose from? Yeah, that sounds possible to me. Then you can go ahead and test your approach. But where we need to begin is by getting real, not hiding, but getting real, and digging in and saying, I actually don't need to delight that many people. I actually don't need to blow away that many people. And instead of hiding behind mass and average and fitting in and pleasing everyone, maybe I could get naked and stand out and do something for a few instead. Hey Seth, my name is Ben and I'm a freelance filmmaker here in Los Angeles. I just listened to your last episode, Supple, and wanted to get your thoughts on how this applies to my industry. I'm actually just finishing my senior year of college, and there's a lot of pressure to be a better filmmaker, create better work, be a better photographer. And I'm wondering if maybe this isn't a winning strategy anymore. So I've been doing this for about seven years, and even in the last seven years, I've noticed a big change in how the market works. When I started, when I was just 12, before high school, I remember... Uh, looking up to people above me, there were higher prices being paid in demand for amazing image quality. And to do that, you needed to understand how the technology worked. With the changes in even the last seven years, the rise of Instagram, digital SLRs, cameras that anybody can use, there's clearly been a shift away from the freelancers and professionals, quote unquote, into the hands of anyone who has the guts to make something. So I'm wondering, what does this mean? It seems like in today's era, almost anyone can take good photos or make good videos. Is there going to keep being a shift towards better work for cheaper that anyone can make? What's next? 
What's next is what's always next. We redefine what better means. Being a better filmmaker in 1930 meant don't ignite the film stock because it's really flammable. Being a better filmmaker in 1978 meant dealing with stars who were a little coked up and keeping them from having a tantrum. Being a better filmmaker in 2015 might mean understanding how CGI works and figuring out how to spend $100 million on a blockbuster without making a truly lousy movie. Better keeps changing. When I started in the book business, being better at laying out a book meant that you knew how to work with a typesetting house. Or maybe it meant that you were the first to use frame or ready, set, go, and that you could hand kern the widows and the orphans so that there wouldn't be bad page breaks. None of that is worth paying extra for now. None of it. What we pay extra for is always the next version of better. The next version of better, when it involves film, has nothing to do with can you focus better than other people can focus, because the camera can focus for you. Better does not mean do you have a red, because this guy only has a Sony. Better, in the world of AI, is coming to mean are you more human? Can you solve interesting problems? And most of all, do you have the guts to lead? To lead into images that haven't been seen before, into projects that haven't been conceived before? Are you able to do the emotional labor of dancing with the fear? That is where every industry is going in a hurry. That it doesn't matter if you're a trained radiologist. The computer doesn't care. It can read the x-ray better, in quotation marks, than you can. So whenever it feels like we're facing a commodity market, we must begin by asking, what does better mean? Thanks for this question for all of them this week. Super juicy. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. 
more than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.